Hello, everyone, and welcome back for the next installment of the Streamtime Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the Senior Content Manager at Sports Pro Media, joined as always by our Managing Director, Nick Meacham. Now, Nick, I know you really don't want to hear me talk about it anymore, but I feel like it just needs to be said. It can no longer be avoided. My Cincinnati Bengals are headed to the Super Bowl. Congratulations once again, Chris. No, it's a it's a great achievement. 30 odd years as we've talked about before. And I am actually very thrilled for you. And I actually tried to look at how big a deal this is because, you know, you're a fan. I get it's a big deal to you. That's fine. But how significant is this? And I looked at the start of the season. They were between 100 to 200 to 1 odds to win the Super Bowl. And I think that was the third uh, the third favorite for the wooden spoon or the the worst worst record in some um, bookmakers. So I was like, wow, that compare that to the story of Leicester winning the Premier League, um, and you know, are they comparable? But then I looked at the price of uh, Leicester City uh, winning that, and it was like five hundred to one, or or even more than that, I think, at some some odds. So from a betting perspective. Not as big a deal for you, very big deal. So, you know, congratulations. Have you got some news to share with with the audience about what you'll be doing for the Super Bowl? Very, very, very exciting news. At about 2 a.m. last night, uh, London time, just want to make that clear, given my accent isn't reflective of that. But at 2 a.m. last night, I did purchase uh, some uh, very spontaneous tickets out to Los Angeles. So, if anyone in the sports industry is uh, working around the NFL and knows how I can get tickets uh, into the game, absolutely please feel free to reach out to us because I will be somewhere at SoFi Stadium in two Sundays' time. And I will not be accepting any responsibility for you over that period of time either. <laughs> um, but look, yeah, great great achievement for the Bengals to make. I still can't believe they've done it. And whilst from a betting perspective, it isn't as big a deal from an odds maker. I mean, the parity in the league and the competition in the league is so strong um, that I still think it is a huge, huge achievement. It's one of the bigger achievements in in pro sports for some time. And I think it's like 20-odd years uh, in the NFL that a team um, has come from, I think, worst to, fir- worst to first, so to speak, in terms of comers with the worst record in the league and the first pick in the draft for only two years later. Um being competing for super bowl so bravo sir bravo um but hey that the real deal is coming in two weeks time so let's see what happens then oh yeah i already will have my my championship belt on i'll bring it back to london and like i said i'm very much very much looking forward to it but it is time we will get on to business and you know talk a little bit more about you know what is it the heart of the stream time podcast and over the weekend um i think you might have even put it out friday evening but i caught it on my, my saturday morning sort of perusal through the the socials as I like to do when I have time to myself while my wife's still sleeping in. But, you know, you last week we talked about Netflix and a bit of the the downturn that took place with their stock price. And then you decided to go even further down the rabbit hole, looking at a, a wider selection of sports and media companies. And I think what you found wasn't necessarily coming up roses for the industry. No, it was pretty pretty bleak reading, actually. So funnily enough, on a personal side, I decided, look, I'm really interested. There's there's more and more companies that I follow from a, from a job perspective. So I thought I'm going to follow them a bit more closely on the stock market over the last few months uh, anyway and just and see what's going on and, hey, maybe even think about buying some shares in the future. Uh, and so I thought I'd dig into it a little bit further following the Netflix announcement where they lost you know, $50 billion off their value in a matter of days. And... I count that I looked up 
uh, I think it was 17 companies that I looked up. Uh, and the, the one of them was, I think it was Google, which was kind of lost a little bit, but was pretty much sitting a couple of percent down. But the rest of them, so 15 of the 16 had dropped in value significantly, at least 10% in six months. Um, and here's a couple of other examples to share. DraftKings down 60%, Sport Radar down 50%, Genius Sports down 66%, Fubo TV, we've talked about a lot, 68% down. Netflix has dropped 50% since November. Uh, Man United dropped 30%, Peloton 80, Disney 24, Penn National Gaming owners of Barstool 41%, Comcast 17, and the list goes on. Uh, there's Amazon, Twitter, Nike, and Adidas and Puma that all had drops there. And when you take a look, it's pretty bleak reading. I mean, I, I know I haven't got every single sports and media business covered in that list, but I've got a lot of the major ones there. Um, and what does it tell us? Well, it tells us there's the, the sexiness or the, the excitement around the sports and media space for, for, for people who invest isn't there right now. Um, and in fact, I think it's shifting a, a lot to the Web3 space uh, where cryptocurrency seems to be on everyone's lips right now, blockchain-based technologies. And I'm guessing that's where some of the money is, funnel money is funneling into. Um, equally, um, there was, I think, at the start of the pandemic, there was this huge, uh, we started talking about it in a lot of different circles, the, the, the uptake or the, the transformation or the acceleration of consumption of digital media solutions and which impacted all of these businesses. And so they all saw a massive uptick in revenues, in subscribers, et cetera. But that's now starting to flatten out two years on from when the pandemic began. Uh, and some of those expectations and projections are, are now starting to dip a bit for the future, for 22 and beyond. Even though that the financials on some of these businesses, like we've talked about Fubo before, talked about uh, well, I haven't talked, talked about them, but I'm following Sport Radar and Genius. Uh, and also, which other one was there? Netflix as well, which we talked about last week. They've all had better than expected quarters. So the money, the, the numbers aren't horrendous, but the resulting reaction is extraordinary. And in fact, the one outlier is Formula One. Formula One has had a 20% increase over the same period, so which is which is an impressive in itself, but all the more extraordinary given the reaction by the market. So I don't know, it's it's something that we have to take note of. Perhaps it's a great time to buy some of these stocks. They're now down and the only way is up, or maybe you've got to wait, sit it out a little bit until, still, until we start seeing some uh, turn in those shares. But um, for people working in the sports and media space, it's not a good sign, at least to see from a confidence perspective. Um, so yeah, I think it's something that I think it really caught me by surprise especially when it was just one after the other being such uh, such uh, negatively impacted by uh, what's happening in the stock market right now. Yeah, and I would recommend for anyone out there, if you don't already follow Nick on Twitter, it's at SportsProNick, but it's not too deep down in his timeline to go follow that Twitter thread. Uh, like I said, it was engaged with, with, with quite a lot of people in the space. Um, it's always good to see quote retweets and get to see people kind of add their opinion on to why they did that, you know, friend of sports pro, you know, Roger Mitchell's been involved. He went and put his own quite long Twitter thread to that, uh, sort of what his response to that was. So anyone that's interested in that and wants to see more of the specific numbers and the whole list of companies that, that Nick put together, I would certainly recommend doing that. If you don't already follow him on Twitter, you should. Um, 
Now, moving on to the next one, you know, they're not one of the publicly listed companies yet, but there were some rumblings earlier this year. They might look to do that in the future to raise more money, uh, but specifically talking about the zone and recently looking at the German market, they've decided to double the cost of their subscription. Uh, that's obviously, you know, quite a significant jump in, in any sort of walk of life. You know, what, what's your takeaway from that? And I know DAZN in Germany is one of the more comprehensive markets they have in terms of what they've invested for rights. But, you know, that is a lot uh, to ask of people. Yeah, look, they've, they've doubled their price from, I think it was 14.99 to 29.99 euros uh, a month. And um, whenever you ask a subscriber for that sort of jump, um, it's always going to be met with a mixed reaction. Uh, and in fact, the zones raised prices in a number of markets over the last sort of 12 months or so with, I think it was raising from something like uh, 10 euros a month to 30 euros a month in Italy off the back of their Syria uh, media rights acquisition and launch. Um, and uh, look, uh, there's always a reaction to these sorts of things. Uh, and what, what inevitably comes from when you raise your prices is you raise the stakes, you raise expectations. Um, and look, what they've done is they've acquired a host of new uh, premium rights over the last 12 months, which do require uh, a higher price point to start paying off the bills. And in terms of the value that the consumer is getting, it's still well worth it. You know, they've they've in, uh, in jointly with Sky, they've acquired uh, a decent chunk of Bundesliga rights. Um, they've got UEFA Champions League rights, which they secured over Sky Deutschland. They've also added a new channel on there, on there in the linear product. And they've also got a, a bunch of other football stuff, a very football heavy. Um, understandably for the, the German market, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and to the price, I think it's pretty reflective of what they've got on store on the platform. But as I said, now they've raised the stakes. So now there will be greater expectation, like we saw in Italy, that you've raised the bar, you've bought the some of the, the most premium sports rights in our market. Now you've got to deliver as a consumer. They were a secondary broadcaster before. They've now raised the bar to become a primary one uh, for sports rights. They need to deliver now. So pressure will be on um, to sort of live up to the expectations and live up to the price, but they're still giving great value in comparison to what uh, many of these subscribers would have been paying for their cable products. So um, not too bad for a consumer if you look at it more empirically. Certainly, they're going to hope for a better, uh, I guess, launch than what they had in Italy um, with the new Syria. There were certainly some issues around that, but uh, I'm sure that they have fixed that and they're going to do everything in their power to avoid that. Um, so moving on from some of the, the subscription based models, you know, one of the, the interesting companies we've been following is TikTok. Um, you know, probably two years ago is maybe the first time I'd started to hear about TikTok. And, you know, I don't think it was people were aware of it, but it just, it seems to have just absolutely accelerated over the last two years. Um, they had partnerships last year working with UEFA and the Euros. Uh, they partnered with Burnley FC specifically with their women's team, and they're actually live streaming all of the games on TikTok, uh, making them the first team to do so. Uh, they're also partnering with the ongoing African Cup of Nations. And then recently, last week, they announced two more deals. Uh, they're going to become the first title sponsor of the Women's Rugby Six Nations. Uh, and they're also going to be partnering with NBC as part of their Winter Olympics coverage, which is also coming up here very shortly. Um, so, Nick, you know, whether it's TikTok or the continuing growth of social media and sports or how they're they're finding their place, you know, is there anything particularly about TikTok that stands out or, you know, just sort of this growing diversification of how some of these rights holders are dividing up their content? 
Yeah, look, it's been really interesting to watch some of the moves TikTok have made over the last, well, the last 12, 18 months, really, you know, from when they did uh, sign up as a, a partner for the Euros was the first step into this sort of, let's say, push to be mainstream. Uh, you know, I, I say this, I say that lightly because, you know, TikTok was, uh, I think there was some data jumping around the internet that they were the number one viewed website or platform in the world over Google last year. So they're, 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 very, they're mainstream enough getting those sort of numbers. But I think in terms of expanding their, let's say, user base and audience base from outside what is seen as a younger generation to, to more mainstream in terms of other de demographics, this, this, these moves make a lot of sense. They want to make, create more awareness. They want to use sports, uh, sports as audience and sports as a platform to do so. Um, and from what I've heard, the, the the moves they've made with like the UFC and Euros has been very successful for them in in, in terms of the level of engagement. So sports is seeing incredible audience numbers on TikTok, and they're only investing more and more time and resources into this for their own, um, you know, for their own benefit to grow follower accounts and, and audience bases there. Um, and TikTok's trying to work with use sports like we've seen with other social media platforms over the years. To again to leverage that um, that that platform and that passion that sports fans have to try and build um, build its audience base. Now, what we haven't seen too much is them moving into the premium live rights, and I would really hope and wouldn't expect them to. Reasons being, every other social media business has tried, and I would say more or less has failed in different ways, shapes, or forms. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to do it. Um, like the Burnley move is an interesting one. Uh, it makes a lot of sense for Burnley because otherwise those games wouldn't be getting a lot of coverage. So it enables them to connect with a new fan base very easily and quickly, but not for the premium rights. I don't think expect to see that sort of coming on to the platform anytime soon. So also it's obviously in that virtual f format, um, which I remember talking to the guys at DFL and they've tried uh, broadcasting explicitly in the, the vertical nine by 16 um, broadcast format, which is basically built for Twitter. I'm sorry, it's basically built for TikTok. So they've tried it. They liked it. Um, it's only early stages for them. So we could expect to see more live sports if if the Bundesliga has its way with its innovation. Uh, they said that actually more fans prefer. Well, there was some data that they'd found where fans prefer to watch games in a vertical format, even. So they watch the phone vertically, even though the game's built for being horizontal on their phone. Um, so if you can broadcast, create a broadcast product that's fit for the vertical, there is a case there that there's an audience willing to watch. But um, look, yeah, TikTok's taking over the world, has taken over the world, uh, and it's only inevitable that they make a big, some big waves in the sports space. So I think more to come. For sure. And we're going to hand things over to your interview with Rache McKnight, who's general counsel at UFC. Um, one of the things we always talk about in the, the OTT and broadcast space, something that I'm actually a really big fan of, and I always kind of challenge the industry that when we ask, what's the biggest challenge? What's the thing that, that worries you? Everyone always says piracy. Everybody accepts the fact that piracy is one of the biggest challenges out there, but yet always sort of seems like a, a secondary topic people don't necessarily want to talk about. But for me, like I find piracy 
very interesting because there's all different layers to it. There's obviously the tech side of things, the innovation, but I think probably a little bit what you're, I'd imagine you spoke a little bit with Rache's, there's also the legal side of things and the, the admin that goes behind it and this kind of need to, to have a multiple step strategy in order to combat that. So how about you just tell us a little bit more about Rache UFC and, and, you know, tee that one up. Yeah, absolutely. So Rache, uh, Rache McKnight uh, also works uh, within the Endeavor the wider Endeavor business. So big, big business that has lots of different spurs and media businesses, entertainment, music, et cetera. And so he works across the wider events. Uh, so sorry, the, he works across the wider uh, Endeavor business, but has a distinct focus on the UFC. Um, and so often you hear across the industry, we talk about the impact of piracy. We do talk a lot about the technical uh, challenges. We don't talk as much about the legal side and he frames it really well to so you get an understanding of a, who the responsibility should lie with. So is it the rights holder? Is it the broadcaster? Is it the big tech companies? Is it the pirates? Who Who's ultimately responsible for? He digs into that a little bit and he kind of holds the big tech companies to account there because he'll go into that detail in, in, in the call, but it's really interesting to get his perspective. Uh, and also the challenges that their hands are, are, not, are fairly tied with the, the sort of the legislation that ex exists around fighting these pirates and so they are leading an initiative to try and win over um, change of the le legislation uh, at a government level. Um, but he also talks about the business impact it's had of the UFC and the impact it has across the entire UFC, uh, let's say, ecosystem from the, from the athletes to the fans to the, the broadcasters themselves. So it's a really interesting conversation. I, I, I've spoken to Rache before and... Um, Look, it sounds like if you talk to him, you realize he's got a big job and, and I don't think ever sits still with fighting different challenges. And piracy is just one aspect of it. So really good that he could give us some time to give us a better, a better sense of what is actually going on behind the scenes to try and eradicate piracy from a rights holder's perspective. Absolutely. Well, like I said, I, I love piracy, um, not because I'm an active participant, but just I find the topic incredibly interesting. So definitely everyone tune in. Uh, like we said, we've spoken to Rache before. He's absolutely awesome. So I hope you enjoy listening to what's coming up with Nick and Rache. Joining us is Rache McKnight, who's general counsel for the UFC and Endeavor, and someone really at the very heart of their war against the Pirates. Welcome to the show, Rache. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Now, let's get straight into things and to kick things off. Let's start with a bit of an insight and intro into you and your background, both at UFC and across the wider Endeavor and business, and also talk us through how you became so involved with tackling piracy at the organization. Sure. Um, so I, I joined um, Endeavor, which uh, about seven years ago, which at the time it was William Morris or WME IMG. It was right when those two entities merged. So WME had its origins in William Morris slash WMA, which was a classic, one of the biggest classic Hollywood talent agencies um, involved in movies, um, theater, music, from soup to nuts, representing producers, writers, actors, actresses, um, pretty much up and down the, the line of Hollywood, merging with IMG, which is a traditional sports talent representation agency, 
but also had a media business, a licensing business, um, owned IMG Models, Fashion Week, um, IMG Academy, and a number of other businesses. Um, that was seven years ago. Since then, we've probably purchased another 20 companies, including the UFC. So when I joined, um, I joined in the capacity as head of litigation for the entire entity, um, dealing with all of our dispute resolution. And, you know, the piracy is is fight is sort of akin to that. It's really an, a, a, a function. It's, it's sort of IP, you know, um, dispute resolution. So my initial introductions to it was in that capacity. Um, when we bought UFC, rebranded as Endeavor, the company rebranded as Endeavor, uh, bought UFC in 2016. And then um, almost immediately, I started to do a lot of work with UFC, both on the litigation front, on the advisory front, and with respect to piracy. Um, officially becoming general counsel in 2019, although you know I was, I was kind of doing a lot of the work prior to then. Um, and UFC has really been the primary driving force within Endeavor uh, with respect to the fight on piracy. You know, we, we do it all over. You know, we, we're involved in a, in, in a lot of things like media businesses, um, Endeavor content, which our studio, um, our music business. You know, there, there's piracy that impacts Endeavor um, in a very, very broad way beyond UFC. But the reason UFC is most directly impacted is because of it's a live event. And the way that piracy has traditionally been combated, um, it's not that the the folks like the social media platforms, broadcasters and otherwise haven't had an answer to this. It's just been much slower than what you need for a live event. So, you know, the typical UFC event um, from top to bottom will go, let's say, seven, eight hours. But the main card, you know, which is what most people are interested in, you know, the last four to five main cards last only several hours. And sometimes the main event, which will be the one fight people really want to see, say it's a Conor McGregor, might go 15 minutes, right? So it's just that platforms have not traditionally had to get accustomed outside the digital, you know, before before streaming to fighting piracy with that degree of speed and immediacy. You know, if we don't get if we don't get streams taken down, um, certainly in, in, in hours, but <clears throat> preferably in minutes, you know, that's what we shoot for. You know, it, it could be enough to dissuade people from purchasing the event. If someone knows Conor McGregor is fighting and they can stream for 15 minutes and see the Conor McGregor fight, that might be enough to keep them from from making a purchase. So and, you know, that translates um, on down cascades on down the line. So. Uh, that's kind of how I first got involved on, on the front lines was because it's such a big issue for UFC. But again, we do pursue it much more broadly um, with respect to our Endeavor content business, which, you know, dealing with television and movie content, our media business um, and so on and so forth. So that's a little bit about my background. I still hold my litigation role uh, within Endeavor globally. I have a co-head now. Um, I hold the general counsel position with the UFC. And then I also manage our risk group, which deals with insurance and and other things of that nature, which I'm sure, you know, people aren't on this call to to discuss. So um, I don't know if you want to get in my pre-endeavor background, but that's 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 sort of what I do here in a nutshell. Cool. I think that's a, that's a good way to start and to set the scene. So you talked a little bit about the why uh, UFC and, and Endeavor are pushing so hard on this. Why is it so hard to get that legal support required to to make those moves i think quite often in these conversations around piracy across the industry 
we often look at the technical challenges there or technological challenges. What are some of the legal challenges you face uh, in, in, in making that happen so quickly? Yeah. So um, I'll talk about some things that, that are universally true, and then I'll talk about Endeavor, uh, UFC specifically. So universally, there, there's an act called the DMCA. And the DMCA was passed, you know, decades ago at a time when Facebook was very, very small, you know, Google, all these tech companies were in their infantile stages. So when the DMC was, a, was crafted, the whole idea was almost to sort of protect that world and allow it to grow, right? The, the content owners like UFC and others were, were not, it's not as if they weren't considered, but it, it, it's these companies that now much piracy is being achieved over weren't the behemoths when this act was passed that they are today. So there was a safe harbor put in, in, in that act. And because of that safe harbor, you know, the, the software, the, the uh, social media platforms and others have to essentially just ignore piracy to have legal liability. If they put forth some effort, which they are doing, you know, typically speaking, they're going to fall under that safe harbor. And because of that, there's no real threat of litigation, right? So the, there, there, there is a, a cause of action, you know, under the DMCA, but it, but ultimately, as currently constructed, that act really doesn't have much teeth um, as far as that civil claim. So uh, when, when when we're kicking and screaming, you know, that this is a, a rampant problem, it's not that we don't get cooperation, but there's certainly no hammer. You know, there's no leverage. Um, the reasons that people traditionally file litigation don't typically work, you know, in this particular context because all of these platforms and others are well burst um, in the DMCA and, and that safe harbor. And they know that ultimately you, you'd end up throwing good money after bad. That That is, you know, what globally makes this, this um, difficult. And, and we're actually in the process now of trying to have the DMCA, the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, reformed, you know, to make it easier to sort of bring it up to date with the reality of um, the balance of leverage between these parties now, because now it's not the big bad UFC and the big bad endeavor against tiny Facebook. It's Facebook who's the giant now. You know, it's Google who's a giant now. Um, if there's if this is a David and Goliath story, we're now David. You know, we're not Goliath. So we're just trying to get that that act sort of um, revised and amended in a way that sort of gets the balance of power back in sync. You know, to where it, where it should be. We don't, we're not trying to run over the tech platforms. I mean, you know, we're just trying to have have a tool so that if, if, if things are run amiss, then there, there's actually something with some teeth there where we can, we can get some action. And, and, and when I say we're not trying to, to, to run over the tech platforms, I mean that very uh, realistically, um, getting to the Endeavor specific, you know, and this isn't just true of Endeavor, but it's, it's not true of everyone who has issues. You know, we partner with Facebook, with Twitter, you know, with Twitch, um, with, um, What's the new one now? TikTok, even you know, th these are partners of ours, not just at UFC, but at at Endeavor. So we don't have any incentive to destroy, um, you know, these platforms. They they there's a lot of areas where they do very very good things for us, and and there's a lot of, you know, um, there are a lot of symbiotic relationships between us and those platforms. But in this particular area, um, we just need them to do better. 
It's a, it's a good point you make. And when you're talking about the tech platforms and the broadcasters generally that are producing uh, the content that is being broadcast and streamed, depending on what method they're using, one of the things we're seeing across the entire industry now, we've seen a classic example of this. I think they are a partner of yours in some markets in B in sports. Last, I think it's last year or the year before they came out and talked about they weren't going to look at rights in the same way because of the way that piracy was having such an impact on the exclusive nature on that and a, and a, a more t- a specific example that uh, they followed up with was with Serie A uh, in the Italian league where they said to Serie A, you're not putting up a good enough fight here. We want actually some of our rights money back and we're going to hold, not hold them to ransom, but hold them up, hold them to account on this. And now they've actually renewed their deal and there's been a huge dip in the valuation they've put behind that. So I'm curious when you start seeing things like that happen and what, I guess, what's your take on that on a macro level? Obviously you you can't comment on Syria specifically, but where does, I guess it comes down to where does the fight, who does it sit with? Does everyone has to play a role, I guess, but also who's taking the ultimate lead on this? Because I think in any way of life in any business world, if one, if, if the, the responsibility is spread across a multitude of partners, sometimes the risk there is that no one puts enough effort into to putting the fight. But I don't know what it's like in this sort of world. So talk us through who's, you know, where does the responsibility really lie here? So I'd answer that question a number of ways. I think what you were speaking of is 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 happening more in the international space with the, the meteorites, you know, Bayek um, over in Saudi and in the Middle East. Um, you know, there's other there's government sponsored piracy, for example, in some regions where we used to sell rights and, and rights holders used to sell rights. When I say we in this context, it's really IMG media. So we're not the rights mm-hmm. holder. You know, we're selling rights for like the Premier League or, as you mentioned, Syria, other um, European soccer leagues. We're, we're being hired as an agent, in essence, to sell those rights on behalf of the rights holders. But we sell them globally. And in certain territories, there's government sponsored piracy. So when that government sponsored piracy is essentially giving the audience, you know, for free, the content we ultimately be selling for the rights holder, then obviously um, people aren't going to be signing up to buy. Um, you know, broadcast it's gonna it's gonna drive down the the price that broadcasters are willing to pay for those rights significantly, which is gonna hit everyone's bottom line. So that that's one issue. Now, when you talk about the other question, I think it's sort of like the general responsibility for fighting piracy in the ecosystem. I think there's a number of, of answers to that. I mean, first and foremost, I think it starts out with some education and some responsibility just being taken by the people who are doing engaging in the piracy themselves, not just the people putting the piracy up, but even the people watching it. I think oftentimes um, the reason that this is such a big problem is people view it as a victimless crime, right? They, they Again, it goes back to this, you know, perception that UFC is the Goliath, you know, and it's a huge entity and they make this money and what is it, you know, it doesn't really hurt them. Even to the extent people think about it, they think about it that way. Sometimes it's just all about free access to content. Why would I pay for something that I can get for free? The problem with that, is, you know, it has a cascading down effect on everyone involved. It's not just our organization, our fighters. Some of them have pay-per-view points. So um, for every pay-per-view not purchased, you know, they lose that revenue. But it, it it goes down even further, even to people who like participate in technical production, salaried employees, you know, folks who aren't making that much money, their, their livelihoods are also impacted by this piracy. So I, I think where it really starts is 
people need to stop doing this. Now, if you're if you're saying assuming they're going to keep doing it, where does it lie with the folks who are affected? I think it takes a comprehensive effect, a comprehensive effort. You know, we obviously have an incentive, you know, to do something about it because you know it impacts us. Same with our broadcasting partner ESPN, um, who's who's been very very helpful. We work with them all the time. They're very very into this fight just as much as we are. Um, they they put a lot of time, money, and effort, you know, into trying to combat this issue. Um, I think it's also the responsibility of the of the social platforms, you know, that a lot of this piracy is accomplished over. Um, you know, it's a big problem. They may not themselves be, you know, creating the streams, the pirated streams, but they certainly are enabling them. Um, one might argue whether or not they have incentive to do so or not. Um, but there are things they can do. And, and you know, I don't want to misrepresent the state of the world to say that they're doing nothing because they are. We just think that there need to be improvements. And, and it's not for lack of effort on our part, and, and even sometimes on theirs. I mean, this these pirates are smart people. You know, as, as we get them to move left and then we chase them left and then they zigzag right, you know, it's, it's why they kind of call this chasing sort of like whack-a-mole. You know, you, you shut down one methodology and they come up with something else. Um, I think the worst of the professional pirates, you know, I, I, these are folks who, this isn't a social media platform where your users are posting streams that are being viewed by, you know, several hundred, sometimes several thousand viewers. These are folks who were setting up sites specifically dedicated to presenting um, pirated content, you know, usually for some sort of profit. You know, it's it's just bad behavior and, and it, it should be stopped. It's the reason why we worked for so long and ultimately last year uh, were successful in getting uh, the felony streaming loophole cl um, closed. Um, before last year, you know, streaming piracy in this context was only a misdemeanor. Um, if you counterfeit or do something with hard goods, that was considered a felony. Streaming and, um, and piracy in, in this new digital world was only considered a misdemeanor, which is sort of you know upside down because the reality is as technology takes more control, it's this area where all the piracy is, is moving. Um, so if you want government enforcement you know, of this type of stuff to be a deterrent, you got to make it a felony. You know, the government's not going to exert the time, resources, and effort it takes to find, you know, some of these pirates. Many of them are, you know, the advantage of technology is you don't have to be where the crime's being committed, right? These people are located all out throughout the United States and sometimes globally, you know, overseas. It takes effort to find them um, and to bring them to justice. And uh, up until we got this felony streaming loophole closed, there really wasn't an incentive um, for the government to do that. So we're hoping that that with the passage of that new legislation, um, we're going to get, you know, the government also brought into this fight. So, you know, a lot of players, um, I think some have more responsibility than others, but regardless of who has the responsibility, it's a huge problem. And it's one that's that's having a negative impact um, on, on content creators, you know, and, and ultimately that's bad for everyone. You know, we want we want to encourage, you know, people to do things like UFC is doing or like Disney is doing or like others. You know, this is good. Um, and, and we want those ecosystems supported. Um, so I think it just takes a comprehensive approach. Absolutely. And you talked about, uh, touched upon the, 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 the differences there between the U.S. market and international, um, ba at least the base for the, from a piracy perspective. From a practical perspective, how does that impact what you're doing at the UFC 
in fighting uh, piracy if they are based in other markets? Does it does it add any complexity to to that fight? It does. I mean, in fact, oftentimes what you'll see happen is we'll have these professional pirate sites based here. We'll find them. You know, when I say find them, not necessarily locate their owners, but find their digital presence. And we're able to do something. You know, we'll send cease and desist or we'll be able to cut out, you know, certain portions of a, of a particular market or even let them know that we're onto them. And, you know, it'll stem the piracy some for a short period. But then some of them will just relocate overseas where, for instance, this felony streaming loophole act I mentioned, it only applies to domestic piracy. Right. So we can't go overseas and prosecute people under that act. Um, it's a very different fight. You know, that government sponsored piracy, for instance, overseas that I mentioned, not a ton we can we can do about that. I mean, there's there's no real law, you know, we have in, in the U.S. here the, to to put an end to that. It's it's sort of the powers that be, in other words, that are committing it are the same powers that have the ability to stop it. And they neither have incentive nor desire. So very, very different fights. I mean, I think that the fight here is more, quote unquote, winnable. Um, I also think, you look, from UFC's perspective, it's a bigger problem here than it is overseas, quite frankly. It's becoming larger overseas. But I think the majority of what we're dealing with is still social media. You know, this this professional pirate stuff is a big problem, but social media is the biggest one. And that's that's not a, you know, a knock at the platforms. It just speaks to the ease of access, you know, that exists in, in today's current world um, with so many people being on those platforms and being able to access content through them. So when I've talked to people who work in the, so the fight sports game and typically pay-per-view is one of the most uh, fundamental monetization methods and distribution methods of the live the, the live product, um, there's varying insights as to the impact that piracy has, but and I'm not sure how much you can share on the data side if you if you can, but typically what I have heard is that more people are watching basically illegally than they are watching through official channels more often than not, which just goes to show sort of the impact um, that it can have. And potentially, if you're able to flip that on its head, what what impact it would have uh, through the ecosystem, as you, you talked about. Uh, I don't know if there's any insight you can give us there. I, I'd love to hear that. But also, in addition to that, um, you've obviously put in, a, put in place a major deal with ESPN in, in the US market. Uh, and within that deal, um, there's a shift away from pay-per-view, I guess, and part of you become part of the ESPN's product, a major, like key part of their offering. Have you seen that move away from being uh, a primary pay-per-view platform, I guess, in the US, which I think is correct? Correct me if I'm wrong there. Has that had much of an impact on the piracy side of things because there isn't that transactional element to it that that used to exist? So I'll answer that. Um in a number of ways, you know, it's hard to know with exactitude how much, you know, the financial impact of the piracy. And the reason is you can't assume every single person that watches a pirated stream would then purchase the pay-per-view if that pirated stream weren't available, right? But we, we, we are able to capture the number of people pirating. And we have run studies with conservative estimates, assuming only one in five um, people watching a pirated stream, for example, bought a pay-per-view um, and sometimes less. And you still end up, you know, in the high seven figures, low eight figure ranges, potentially up to the high eight figure ranges, depending on, you know, what percentage would would convert over. So it's a significant 
Um, and, and that's on an annual basis. You know, you're, you're losing major dollars, major dollars here, likely tens of millions um, on an annual basis. Um, as far as the ESPN business model, I mean, I can't go into too much detail there, but what I will say, it's a combination now of pay-per-view. Um, there's some subscriptions, you know, there's ESPN plus. So ESPN is also making money on people who, who buy subscriptions and you're correct that not every one of our events are pay-per-view. Um, we do, we have a pay-per-view essentially once every four events, roughly, um, but ESPN does monitor the piracy even in the non-pay-per-view events, and it's pretty robust. I mean, you know, it, it varies by card. Um, there's some non-pay-per-view. Um, typically, these are fight night, fight night events that actually have some pretty good headliners occasionally. And when they do, piracy is, is significant um, for those events as well. Um, so, so, again, you can't measure the direct correlation of the impact as much when you're not dealing with the pay-per-view events because – you know, it's not a dollar for dollar um, scenario, but it's still significant. It's certainly, you know, material for ESPN because part of the way that they get paid is ad revenue. And as you know, ad revenues are, are based upon eyes on the screen. And, and I'm sure when they when they renegotiate our deal, right, they're going to take into account the number of viewers, you know, that that we're watching these events, not just the pay-per-view events, but the other ones, because, again, that that revenue impact has a cascading effect. Um, so that, that's, I mean, I guess that's about as much specificity as I can, I can provide in that particular area. So we've got about five minutes left. So I quickly want to touch on the lobbying side for, for government. You've, you touched upon that earlier on. Just talk us through what, what you're going through there to try and make the changes to the DMCA that you, you mentioned earlier and what else you need to do. And, and yeah, and sort of talk us through what that looks like exactly from here. Sure. So, you know, the initial um, push here and to do this was um, through Senator Tillis. And, you know, we've been working also with the Copyright Alliance, which is essentially a conglomeration of a number of content providers from the sports, entertainment and other industries that are impacted by this, you know, really music, sports and entertainment. Um, so first coming together with a game plan among ourselves, you know, not every industry is impacted in the same way. For instance, I, I, I pointed out some of the differences with live content. Like we need things to happen a whole lot more expeditiously. Um, we focus on expeditious removal much more so than some of the other content owners because, it, you know, their events are like movies, things that if you take down a movie in 24 hours, that's pretty expeditious if that movie is going to run for six months. If you wait 24 hours for a UFC event, then, Someone's seen the entire event. So, you know, there, there are different aspects of the DMCA we, we think need to be reformed. We all, we all agree, you know, on the repeat infringer aspect of it. Um, that's an aspect that certainly we all agree needs to be reformed um, and that we focus on. And that just means, you know, practically things like if people have put, posted pirated sites multiple times, uh, they need to be blocked during the dependency of ongoing events and perhaps just have not just that account, apologize, my phone's falling here, um, but related accounts disabled, um, which is something that not all, all platforms currently do. So the, the way we've been working this up is, you know, the Copyright Alliance working with members of, of Senator Tillis' staff, which he's no longer, by the way, the head of the IP committee. So we're, we're now having to get, you know, more legislative support for this. Um, 
you know, and, and tech has a, a role in it too, right? That's the other thing to just realize when we're trying to push this, it's not like just us pushing on the one side and, and that's the end of it. Tech has their, their lobby as well um, that we're pushing against. I think the ultimate thing we love to see is this safe harbor modify in a way, and I mentioned this kind of at the top of the call, that would give some sort of civil litigation action by content owners teeth. So that if we have a disagreement as to how the social, um, you know, the social platforms are going about fighting piracy, we think they're not doing it as expeditiously as they can. We think we've laid out a clear plan for things that they have the potential and capability to do, but they refuse to do, then at least there'll be a legal action to, to file to let a judge decide whether or not we were being reasonable or not. Now, whether or not that case actually gets filed, who knows? As, as you all know, who deal with litigation, oftentimes the threat of litigation is just as powerful and useful as actual litigation itself. And, and frankly, we have an incentive, as I kind of mentioned earlier, because we partner with a lot of these guys to not necessarily file litigation. But if things got to a certain point and you had to, you know, th there's always a line, right, in any given situation uh, where you might do that. But but right now, it just, the decision's not even being made based on relationships or things of that nature, because it just would be pragmatically ineffective. And we know that because of the way the act's currently constructed. So um, we continue to fight that fight. You know, amending legislation takes years. You know, that's a frustrating thing about it. It's not like you just come up with a great plan. Um, this thing has gone through you know, editing processes for over a year um, with pieces, bits and pieces here being added by different stakeholders, things being taken out, um, de-emphasized, you know, um, all because of the political process. So hopefully by the time we get the final bill in place, it actually says what we want it to say and has some teeth to it. But I can tell you that people are working at a feverish pitch on it. Uh, we haven't given up. We're still pushing, still seeking support, bipartisan support. Um, you know, to, to get it passed. And, and you know, tech will have a say as well. Um, we don't think what we're doing is objectionable, by the way. You know, the things we're asking for, we think are very, very reasonable. Uh, we don't think these are, are complex um, or problematic asks. Well, I think that's probably as good a spot to, to wrap things up on. Look, I think everyone across the industry will be watching quite keenly to see what happens uh, around that that change and development around around the bill because it will hopefully have quite a dramatic impact at least from the legal side fighting the technology that keeps innovating is a whole nother challenge altogether but a part of the part of the puzzle nonetheless i want to thank you again Rache, for joining us um i know you're you're constantly traveling and managing uh teams across different time zones so really appreciate you finding some time to join us today and thank you everyone for for tuning in and and hearing us talk about this important topic